happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room for July the 29th, 2020, episode 185. I am Wes Fryer coming to you from much more boring uh, circumstances here since I'm not using any kind of green screen. However, we do have the Minecraft sword carefully placed there. <clears throat> I have been known to <clears throat> lead some summer Minecraft camps. But in uh, my day job, I am the uh, technology integrate the technology integration and innovation specialist at the Cassidy School. In the pandemic, this fall, starting August third, when our when we all go back to school next on Monday, face to face, that will mean teaching four sections of media and digital literacy for fifth and sixth grade, and two sections of Spanish for fifth grade, which I have not prepared very well for, and I'm going to be doing a lot of. Uh, you know, it's trying to stay one step ahead of the kids and staying ahead of all distance learning and online learning best practices is Dr. Jason Neifer coming to us, I guess, from, you know, right, right there in Helena, Montana, or at least virtually. Is that, is that where your background is tonight, Jason? Uh, no, this is actually northern Montana. This would be Glacier National Park in mm -hmm. fabulous northern Montana. It's a park actually shared with our good friends in Canada. And I, of course, and I, I did get asked uh, a couple weeks ago, someone um, that had downloaded or watched the YouTube video asked, where what does my office really look like? And I think they were trying to accuse me of, of being a bit of a slob, which, to be clear, I am, you know, all great creative geniuses are a bit messy, but, um, you know, I am from my otherwise uninteresting home office here in Missoula, Montana, where it's pretty warm tonight. I think we're in the mid-90s still here at uh, 8 o'clock mountain time, but uh, I don't just talk about the weather or my office. I am the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the fabulous University of Montana campus here in Missoula, Montana, but enough about me. Lots of news going on this week uh, in the broader technology uh, world. And, of course, as schools uh, uh, go through painstaking planning to open up during a pandemic, I'm sure that if you're listening to this, you've been part of extraordinary numbers of discussions about where schools are going. But we've got lots of interesting pieces we want to talk about tonight. Um, Wes, uh, any topic you want to start off with? Well, uh, let's remind everybody you can go to edtechsr.com slash links for our Google Doc where we have 185 or, well, yeah, this is 185 tonight, 185 shows. Uh, and so anyway, more links than, than we'll have time to talk about. Uh, you know, I think I'll start with a, um, well, I don't know. I'll, sometimes I'm always doing media literacy. Let's just do the pandemic ish and do a practical one. Uh, this is an article I found this week as we're talking about you know, what kind of advice can we give to parents in terms of bandwidth and teachers? And so this is a pop sci article from March 12th uh, called How Much Internet Bandwidth Do You Actually Need to Work from Home? Uh, hopefully, if you are involved in education, if you're working from home, you have students, you know, this isn't the uh, first moment that you are uh, thinking about this because it certainly was a good thing over the summer to do to look at upgrading your bandwidth, look at upgrading your network. One of the things I mentioned on the show <clears throat> that my son and I did together a couple of weeks ago was we <clears throat> extended an Ethernet plug to uh, the bedroom, which is just right next to me here. And that has, you know, just, I don't know, well, I, I'm going to be challenged on the math, but I mean, it is five and six times. I, I think I was something like 20 megs down here. And now I, we're way over a hundred. I think we can get more like 150 down. Um, so that, that's a huge, huge difference. So this is a, an article that, uh, basically gives you some bandwidth requirements for, uh, using Zoom, uh, using Google Hangouts, using Skype. Um, you know, and, and ask that question, who has the speed that they need? And we're hearing more reports today uh, from different school districts and folks talking about going remote, talking about, you know, school superintendents, state level, uh, education folks working with, with local providers. I don't know if that's happening actually here in Oklahoma. I hope it is because we are a very rural state and there are a lot of folks that don't have, you know, the connect the, the high speed connectivity that, that they need. So anyway, um, I thought that was, uh, that was helpful. So Jason, uh, shout out to Peggy George there in our chat room. Uh, what kind of advice do you all give the Montana Digital Academy uh, students and teachers? And what are, what are norms in, in Montana as far as you know, in terms of high speed right now for folks? 
Well, I mean, I can tell you that that uh, I was recently offered an upgrade in my home internet. Uh, I have cable internet uh, through Charter Spectrum in Missoula, and I'm getting 400 down and 20 up. And I, I'm not actually consistently getting 400 down, in part because I've had to reconfigure my network a little bit. And this is going to get a little into the nerdum, but um, I use Google Wi-Fi's their their uh, um, mesh-based network system, and I'm not getting uh, uh, as much down as I think I should on individual devices, but I also have a power over Ethernet uh, system in my home because I prefer to keep things wired. Like for the podcast, I can I, I notice a noticeable difference when I'm over wired, even power over Ethernet than or Ethernet over power than I uh, would be if um, you know with my increased amount of bandwidth. I can tell you a couple of, of, of quick stories about this. First and foremost, that uh, if you're not testing your bandwidth, uh, and I know that that sounds awfully geeked Italy, but the bottom line hey, that, is let's just tell people this is a peril of watching us you know if, if you're, you're gonna you're gonna have some geeky rabbit holes <laughs> right, no, right no, yeah apologies needed here no so um I, I i think you need to know if you're getting the bandwidth that's advertised and also it could be your home networking equipment too that you're utilizing if you just bought the first uh wi-fi router that you found at best buy seven or eight years ago there's a good chance that even if you upgraded your ethernet it's probably i'm sorry your your uh uh uh, connection, your broadband connection, are paying more per month, you might not be getting the throughput that you really deserve. And if you are in a home, I mean, I, I, I'm i not the typical use case of just about anything, but it's just my wife and I, and, and yes, we both work out of the house now, and we both spend a lot of time in Zoom calls, and we both use a lot of bandwidth, but we have way more than we need at 400 down and 20 up. But when we were, when we used to be at 100 down and 10 up, which is what we were just a couple of weeks ago, uh, if there was a super important call that either of us had to be on, um, we would ask the other to just, you know, to calm it down a little bit. Don't stream Netflix or, or Spotify in the background. It shouldn't make a difference, but it does because home routing equipment is really not as industrial as the stuff that you're putting into in, in schools, right? So, you know, you can handle a lot of pretty complex tasks uh, on an, an industrial commercial uh, equipment, but if you're using home stuff, it's really not that great. So if you have five or six people at a time that are uh, hammering your home Wi-Fi uh, and you're using dated equipment and perhaps you, you have a, a lower plan and it's just not working out, absolutely think about upgrading as an alternative. Um, and then uh, one other hint to know is that I've experienced this two or three times now that I've had people that have been on on calls with me, video calls with me that are experiencing problems and, you know, the not tech savvy among them will blame, um, you know, someone else is on the network at the same time, but your network should be good enough to have two simultaneous Zoom calls if you have anything above 50 megabits down. And if you're not, if that's not happening, make sure you're getting your full throughput. And as an example of something is that I've advised recently that's worked with two people that I know that they were getting terrible, terrible speed on their network. They unplugged their, their, their modem. So that's the box the cable company or the phone company gives you if you have DSL. They left it unplugged for 10 minutes. And I've even done this overnight with some success too. Plugged it back in after a little bit of time and Oftentimes that can do a lot of miracles because as some examples of this is that sometimes your cable company will push out updates to your modem that need to restart. And the only, only way to really do that would, would be to unplug and plug it back in. But you don't ever look at your modem that never gives you an indication. There's no screen on it. So you don't know that. Um, but also sometimes it just loses connection or things get gummed up and, and pulling, uh, pulling the power and plugging it back in be, can be very effective. But if you're not getting the speed that's advertised, right? Call your provider and ask about it because you are paying for that bandwidth. Two other things about this. Jason helped talk me into uh, the Google Wi-Fi, <clears throat> which to be clear, I mean, we pay Cox Communications here for our, for our internet, but the hardware, instead of paying a monthly lease to Cox, which they would love us to do, um, we, you know, bought the, the, what's now called the Google Nest Wi-Fi setup. We have three different access points. Well, there's a lovely app. In fact, as Jason was talking, I just tapped on it and gave my computer right here priority. Not that it's going to be a big deal, but 
generally in the evenings, a couple of people are streaming things. And if you go back to our earlier shows, like I literally muted myself sometimes to, you know, shout up the girls, let's turn off the Netflix. I mean, that's how we had to do quality of service. <clears throat> but now I can do that right here on the app and you won't be able to completely read that. But this is my history of network speed. I'm paying for a thousand down, but my average download is 584 megs. So one of the things I've needed to do, and, and I, 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 uh, I just haven't uh, contacted them, is, I mean, I have before, and they're like, yeah, looks good to us. The tech rabbi on a Facebook post recently uh, commented to me that, you know, when you have a third-party modem, which we have, a, I think it's called surfboard modem, those, I guess, by some providers can actually be throttled. And so anyway, uh, yes. Test your, your device. If you use Google Wi-Fi, Nest Wi-Fi, uh, you have a device that will let you, you know, take a look at every day. Every day it's testing the speed. And so you can see if you are getting what you're paying for. And uh, I have a, a hunch, Jason, that we're going to be uh, doing a little remote learning here in the next year. And this is going to continue to be an important issue for folks working from home, learning from home. And, uh, you know, you may be that IT person in your family who is called upon to provide some assistance. So it's good yeah. to have some tools and some suggestions and, you know, upgrading your, your equipment. It, it isn't something you want to do every day. And it's, you know, when you get Google Wi-Fi Nest equipment, it's it's not like getting a Linksys, you know, router for like 30 bucks or 50 bucks. I mean, it costs a little bit more. But when you think about the importance of, of bandwidth now, it's just like HVAC. It's like you know, your sewer and plumbing. I mean, are you really going to live without a flushing toilet today? You can, but I think that the nor the, the degree to which internet connectivity has become the norm and the expectation, uh, we've crossed the threshold. We, we've crossed it quite a while ago and the pandemic has certainly made that even more true than ever before. So yep, where would you absolutely. like to go? Next, Dr. Well, I don't know if I know enough about this to speak more about it, but if if other things weren't going on, I think by far the biggest story in the last seven days is the fact that the four leaders of four of the five biggest tech companies, uh, United States slash the world, were called in front of Congress today. And so I'm quoting a, a Verge article from today, but the CEO from Apple, Google, Facebook, and Amazon uh, uh testified in front of Congress today. And it was a, you know, it was a, is a digital hearing. So they were all able to kind of, um, and I, I did not look to see which platform it was, cause that would actually be a, a kind of a funny, a funny question, but all four of them came in and made a five minute statement and started answering questions. And I, and I like, I, I've only been able to process really deep reading a, a, about a third of this, but the, the Verge article basically quotes the interesting things that happened today, but really the questions being asked of all four of these companies, are at their essence a fundamental questioning of where big tech has gone in. I mean, you could say the United States, but it's really a global thing as it's been for, you know, uh, really some time now. And um, it's interesting because uh, the way the New York Times uh, depicted it, and I only had a, a few moments before the podcast started tonight to, to peruse the New York Times article, was that uh, it's it's like Democrats and Republicans, so both sides of the aisle have agreed to gang up on big tech. They're just ganging up on them from different points of view, right? Like there's a, a concern um, about big tech. The problem, of course, is that not everyone shares the same concerns and seems to be attacking big tech from a multitude of uh, uh, angles. But the one thing that I thought was super interesting that doesn't have a lot of technology or at tech impact, but uh, Mr. Zuckerberg today, uh, the CEO of Facebook, uh, in his opening statement, tried to downplay Facebook as a market leader, and he said that, in essence, he, he argued that Facebook was behind all of its other competitors in, in critical ways, right? So, uh, uh, you know, and... and uh, in terms of doing the right thing, of course. <laughs> Good point, right? But, you know, it's, it is interesting, and, and I think these hearings continue on to tomorrow, but, um, you know, uh, all, all four of them try to tell kind of a, a, a kind of 
of a classic American, uh, uh, you know, uh, story of where they came from. Mr. Bezos noted that he was, uh, the child of a, of, of a, of a, or he was, uh, when he was born, his mom was a teenager and he kind of pulled himself by the bootstraps to become this, you know, uh, uh, incredible CEO. Sundar Bachai has an equally interesting backstory as well. He is the CEO of, of Google. Um, and I, I think that we should keep an eye on this if for no other reason than if we're going to see some regulation of technology, this is the kind of effort that's going to take, right? And it, this is not for show. I am convinced that there are regulators amongst the members of Congress that are asking some of these hard questions. But of course, you know, the devil's in the details, and that's particularly true with regulating tech. But Wes, have you had a chance to look at any of this stuff yet? And I know that the, the summary articles came, came really late tonight. Yeah, not yet, but I did hear an article this morning. Uh, this was the first time Jeff Bezos, who is the wealthiest human being on our planet uh, currently. Uh, this is the first time he's ever testified in person before Congress. Um, there always is some show and some theater to this. And um, I think, you know, it's, it's all, this is part of Congress as far as grandstanding and, you know, folk, Congress folks that may be sometimes more interested in getting a, a, a you know, news bite and, and just, you know, trying to, trying to skewer rather than trying to, you know, genuinely ask questions. Uh, but I agree it's momentous. It's super important. <clears throat> and I'll say, I mean, I, without a doubt, the speed and the velocity with which we have seen change, not only in just social media and, and, uh, you know, the ways in which we're communicating, but in the ways that elections happen, in the ways, I'll, I'll go so far as to say in the ways today that disinformation is the most important political actor. Uh, I think that we have a real danger and I don't, I don't see us getting this resolved in the near term. I don't think it'll be resolved by this election that the disinformation processes and, and forces are going to be, uh, equal or greater than legitimate political influences in swaying opinion and determining outcomes, not just in the United States, but in other places too. So I think it is absolutely vital that we have these kinds of conversations and these conversations are going to need to lead to action, right? Because right. we're in a situation right now of self-regulation when, you know, we have heard from from Pachai, uh, I think I had a quote from Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google in our last show, you know, and, and Schmidt was great. You know, he was saying, okay, child pornography, we can agree that's terrible. Let's stop it. But what else? You know, because we have a lot of generalized um, angst and anger and also I think awareness. I mean, the level of the amount of power that these platforms have and specifically in the ways in which their algorithms shape the things that we see and the things that are amplified, you know, to their credit, Twitter and one of the articles or it's actually a video I'll get to in a minute um, has to do with QAnon. We've talked about them before on the show, um, you know. The platforms decide in, 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 through their algorithms who to amplify and what kinds of terms and, and hashtags and things like that are going to be filtered or not. What's going to be recommended. Uh, the, the power is just tremendous. And so, right. yeah, I think that it, that is a, an exceptionally important article. Peggy George is asking in the chat. She's wondering if the Congress, congressmen and women, you know, felt they got the answers they were seeking. Um, you know, I, I think that. This is the tech correction, right? Jason named it months ago. Uh, this is the, the, the reckoning, the, the, the regulation that is coming, the changes to laws, the changes to perhaps fundamental rights that are recognized in our society and the ways in which those are protect, protected. Digital consumer protection. We do not have this today. And we had horrific things happen in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Uh, Cambridge Analytica became a household name. And if you haven't watched the documentary that's on Netflix about that, that is, you know, pretty eye opening. But here's the thing, folks. Stuff hasn't changed in terms of the regulatory environment or the requirements. Now, what the tech companies are doing has definitely changed. But we're still in this situation where we're hoping for the tech companies to basically kind of heal themselves. And we don't, in my understanding, have a strong constituency 
Um, we had in Europe the the GDPR, the General Directive on Policy Regulation, something like that. General Directive on it. I think that's what it stands for. But anyway, we have that. But we we have do not have an analog that I think is viable at this point to be passing Congress. And I don't know that this is a major political campaign issue for people. Uh, COVID is definitely overshadowing everything. So, Jason, have you seen anybody or any groups really championing, you know, specific legislation that would rein in the the power of the tech companies? Because I think that's what uh, Schmidt was talking about, too, is it's a lot of generalized angst and people are like, yeah, they're too big, they're too powerful. But like in terms of specifically, okay, what law are you going to pass? What are you going to do? I don't know that I've seen that. Have you? I've not at all. And in fact, uh, I would say that what's interesting, I think, about the rhetoric that is happening in these types of hearings is that they don't seem to get to the point of things, but rather, you know, kind of uh, uh, line up to bat to you know, take hits that make good sound bites. Now, I will say in defense of of what I think happened today in Congress. And, and again, I've not read as much coverage on this because most of the summary coverage happened very late in the day today. It looked like these questions were infinitely more nuanced than when they first hauled uh, Mr. Zuckerberg up on uh, up on the hill and, and made him testify about what was going on there. And, and I'll give you an example of this: that uh, there was a, several exchanges when when Mr. Zuckerberg was live on the hill. I think this was like 2017 when it happened, where it was clear that members of the Senate had never actually been on Facebook, right, and understood broadly how technology worked. And there was a famous back and forth with with Mr. Zuckerberg about. Uh, and apparently I've got my congressional thing on Mr. Zuckerberg, where they asked how Facebook made money and Mark was actually stunned by the question, right? Because it's it's been 20 years since the advertising-based internet has been the primary means of commerce, right? That uh, he was stunned into saying, well, well Senator, we... We, we sell ads. And then there was this kind of weird silence and some chuckling in the crowd. And it looks today, at least from the early coverage, that the questions were a little more nuanced than that. But Wes, you, you ask about specific plans. Um, I haven't seen anything that is a real solidified, like, this is how we fix tech. But I would say things like the Electronic Freedom Foundation, which is doing great work, I think, at privacy protection. One of the ways the tech could be reined back is by providing more protection for your private data, which right now is being absolutely monetized by tech companies. And what that does effectively is that it puts more control into the individual user. Your personal data doesn't get sold, but that's also going to mean that the internet is going to be more expensive to use for the end user. And if we suck up some of that shocking amounts of money that I think some tech companies and really all four of the companies hauled onto Capitol Hill today have some trade that this is not necessarily in private data. Uh, Apple's been very clear they're not interested in that, but some trade in the way they do marketing or in the way they conduct business that could be modified in some way if we started doing things like monetizing our individualized data for, for personal use. I dropped a link into our chat for Shoshana Zuboff. She is the Harvard professor who has written a book. I think she took seven years to write it on surveillance capitalism. And I would say that this model of surveillance capitalism, which is what Jason's referencing, where we, the users, are the currency, we're the you know product, uh, because it's free for us. So how are we getting that? Well, we're trading uh, you know, information. We're trading privacy. Uh, we are... Uh, you know, trading, trading bits of information, little bits that all add up and they add up to big dollars. And so, you know, that's a, I have not read her book. I've listened to podcasts with her interviews and read articles and things like that. And I would commend that because I think that's an important piece of this puzzle to understand. And it is a different world, but it does, the surveillance capitalism model that is predominating now among Facebook, uh, among Twitter, you know, arguably, you know, Google and YouTube, I think as well, you know, that we don't, that doesn't have to be a completely unregulated wild west. And it still basically is. For, fortunately, Dr. Neifer is going to be running for, I think, Senate in the state of Montana <laughs> within, within four years. And he will be bringing all the knowledge of technology that he has, has uh, collected over his many years into the United States Senate for the great uh, big sky country. So I look forward to that, Jason, and please send me the link to your GoFundMe. We will put it, we will put it in the show notes as a geek of the week as soon as it's available. 
Well, uh, 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 fantasy campaigns aside, uh, should we talk a couple of quick pandemic things? You bet. Let's do it. Uh, well, uh, I put through an article in only because you're going to see a lot more of this, I think, in the coming weeks and months. But Google's announced that they will keep their employees at home until July 2021 uh, in an effort to protect them from the COVID-19 pandemic. And what's, of course, interesting to me about this is first, because I am likely stuck at home, too, until maybe that date or, or later uh, in light of my, my personal uh, circumstances. But I think also secondarily, when we talk about things that will change post-COVID, uh, I cannot turn on NPR, pick up the New York Times, read the Washington Post, uh, pick up Google News or Microsoft. Microsoft News or any of the aggregators and not see an article about how a lot of tech companies may strongly reconsider having expensive buildings and expensive towns and expensive locations in order to house all their workers together if they can get their teams to work productively productively in a remote scenario. And in fact, I think I listened to, it was last week's All About Android on the Twit Network. I, I uh, at, was actually off for a long weekend. I took a couple vacation days before the, the real storm started up in August, September with my day job. But the they brought on the Android team leader to talk about, you know, how the pandemic had, had impacted what they were doing. And he said it took them a week or two to get used to remote tools. And they they estimated that they lost about 7% of their productivity in the shuffle to home, but then they were able to reorganize and move forward again. And I think you're going to find more companies talking about how does this work, uh, what might be the advantages of this, but also the shocking expense it takes to keep a lot of these, especially high-tech industries in Silicon Valley and other expensive areas around the Bay in offices in that region. So um, I, this probably does have an impact at school on schools at some point down the road as the discussions happen. But I thought that was an interesting harbinger of things to come. It's also going to be super interesting to see what is about to happen with schools and with colleges. You know, can we pull this off to not become these massive incubators of COVID-19 bringing together, especially young people um, on that same topic? I dropped an article that um, I learned about from uh, our academic planning team for next year. I don't have a date for it, actually. I think it was earlier this this spring for sure, but it's from McKinsey and company. It's called coronavirus. How should us higher education plan for an uncertain future? Oh, duh. There's the date. It's, it's April 3rd. Um, and so they, they talk about, you know, the models of, um, you know, how is this, how are we going to be responding as a society to the pandemic? Is it going to be rapid, effective control? Is it going to be regional resurgence? It's going to be broad failure. I kind of think we're in that middle box now in terms of, of regional resurgence. Um, but, you know, the implications are, and this is so interesting because our, our uh, middle daughter, middle child is, returning as a sophomore to University of Central Oklahoma, just here in, in uh, Oklahoma City area. And she did not manage to make the cut in one of her classes for the face-to-face -face section. And the university has created a lot of these of hybrid sections. And so she has to decide whether she's going to stick with that. Well, it's not hybrid. It's an online version of that class. I think it's an accounting class. Or whether she's going to try for something else. But the whole mix of you know, our, our, our school is going to be able to socially distance enough, limit the number of folks face to face in academic buildings. But it's not even that. Like when you get all these young people together and, and they have freedom, of course, uh, are they going to, you know, isolate themselves and, 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 and follow, you know, procedures that we know limit the, the spread? to not, you know, create some, some large scale infections. And I was real interested last week, Jason, you mentioned, I think San Diego and Los Angeles, which was like a combined 875,000 students that were going to be remote all year long. Um, we have had a few more districts, you know, announce the delays that they're going to go back later. Um, we we're going back face to face. Uh, and we have had webinars this uh, week, actually every night this week that, um, are for our parents, letting them know here are our plans. And I've got to say, I um, th there's a really good Atlantic article, maybe I'll try to put it in the show notes, that, that it, uh, calls out something called hygiene theater. 
And <clears throat> that term was used for security uh, situations as security theater after 9-11, where some things were being done over the top that weren't really necessarily keeping people safer on planes and stuff like that. And it's a it's a good article. Um, but one, but, but it, I don't I don't take it to say we don't do any of this stuff. What we shouldn't do is say that, oh, yeah, just because we're doing this fancy cleaning, we don't need to wear masks or we don't need to socially distance. We don't need to limit the amount of time that we're close closely together. Um, our school has purchased these HEPA 13 filters. I wasn't familiar with the terms, but it actually does filter out um, virus carriers and anthrax and just all, all kinds of things. Uh, we've got one of those per room, one of those per office. Uh, HVAC systems have been upgraded. Um, there's just a whole lot. And then uh, procedures and stuff on top of that. So that's a long way of saying that you know, I think our school is going to, as uh, I think probably all independent schools are trying at this point, um, you know, our best to see if we can follow all these procedures and we can keep kids safe. The good news is there are organizations, uh, I'm thinking of child care organizations and, and places that, you know, parents who have, you know, critical jobs and just couldn't stay home with the kids, you know, they had to have a place. Uh, there's a number of those around that uh, have have been able to successfully remain open and not, you know, have massive outbreaks of COVID and, and needing to shut down and that kind of thing. So we are, as of next week, stepping, stepping, you know, leaving the house <laughs> and going back in, in mass to school. And it is going to be an interesting ride. And I think that, um, you know, we're just, we're, we're going to have to remain flexible because, uh, you know, not only will the outside societal changes and what people choose to do and whether we're in a regional outbreak, I mean, that'll potentially affect us, but every decision we make will affect us. And the number of, of people and kids that we're in front of, um, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. So it is a good time to have good digital skills and it's a great time to be a connected educator and to be, you know, able to call on that PLN, not only for support, but specific answers and additional learning and, it was the homework several weeks ago, folks. But if you don't, if you don't follow Peggy George, you just got to do it right now because Peggy will connect you. In fact, I think yes. Look at that. I still have it as a saved banner right here in Streamyard. Follow Peggy right now. Well, let, let me add one other thing to this discussion because the flip side of this is that for the districts that are going remote. That's not, I mean, for a variety of reasons, there's no ideal solution here, right? And if there was an ideal solution, this would be easy and would look consistent across the United States. And it's not, it isn't and it's not. But the uh, article I want to mention, and I had to kind of find an article here that that that, that uh, uh, spoke to this, but this is from Fox 4 on, on, on July 21st. It talks about how there is a worldwide demand right now for technology. And we, we've talked about this in some context. For example, in, in April and May, it was very difficult to find a name brand webcam. In fact, it's still very difficult to find a name a name brand webcam. Um, for example, the standard Logitech that I used to recommend that was a, a 30 or $40 purchase, a uh, nice stable platform that worked on everything. Those have been out of, of stock for, for months now. Um, I did, uh, uh, before the pandemic started, actually pre-order a, a Logitech webcam. I'm sorry, this is a Lenovo webcam that happens to be 1080p. It was also USB-C compatible, and I wanted this for my, my, my travel bag. It came in in July. Uh, it's nice. It's got a higher resolution than the cam I've been using for literally 12 or 13 years. And then now out of curiosity, a couple weeks ago, I bought one of the, the brand names you never heard of webcams on Amazon just to see what the quality of that was. I think I paid $18 for it. And it was actually not bad. It, it wasn't terrible. But uh, I, I have an experience here that kind of helps replicate this. Uh, we have some part-time staff members coming on this fall as part of my day job program. And I'm the department IT guy. And we use Chromebooks for those particular employees. They're remote to us. They do part-time advocacy work for us and work on professional development across the state. And we utilize managed Chromebooks. And so I went to go buy three of my preferred Chromebooks. I like HP Chromebooks, 14-inch Chromebooks that have i3 chips in them and 8 gigabytes of RAM. They are considered medium range Chromebooks, right? So they're not necessarily high need ones because schools aren't paying, you know, four to six hundred dollars for a Chromebook. But for us, it's the perfect computer at the perfect price. Um, I could not find 
these Chromebooks. I couldn't buy them from HP. They were out of stock. I couldn't buy them from one of my providers. And I'm not going to name them because it's not really their fault. But I ended up going to Best Buy. uh, And I have a business account at Best Buy because we bought televisions for our office from them in the past. And uh, first of all, they wouldn't let me put more than one in my cart, even though I'm a business. So I had to call the business specialist. And he allowed me to buy three. But he said that I don't know when these are going to be in. And he said, my guess is, is August 15th. But he said this day, this, this changes daily and it could be months before these are in stock. Well, as it turns out, it's what July 29th today. They shipped this morning. So I'm feeling like we, we kind of lucked out here, but there is a, it were a global shortage right now of technology. And on this morning's NPR coverage of remote learning, they were talking about districts that were going all online that said things like they were ready to issue Chromebooks to their middle school and high schoolers, but they wouldn't have stock to issue them to elementary students until January or February. And like, I just, I can't wrap my brain around that. Right. Like, uh, go ahead. Earlier this summer, as we were looking at that, uh, suppliers were telling us November for Chromebooks. Now, fortunately uh, we've had, we have a lot of Chromebooks and iPads are what we need to order. And I think that those are going to be in by the start of school. But, yeah, it's crazy um, because the quantities we're talking about, like we're literally I mean, folks have talked about one to one for a long, long time. Right. And I've been known at different times to beat a drum about every student needing a digital learning device. I still think that's true, but this has made it a reality. This is not an option, you know, if your school district is remote and not going back. Um, so I think that it's good, but boy, is it going to be tough. On the good hand, you know, there are, well, I don't know. There's there's so many different aspects to this, and especially when you think about food, when you think about the vital roles in, in many communities yeah. that schools play uh, to, to help to help families and family members, you know, eat, uh, and, and schools step, step up to that. I mean, our Oklahoma city public schools, you know, fed thousands and thousands of meals all summer long, but, um, a lot of things are being uncovered and we're, we're seeing a lot of things that needed to be acted on, you know, yesterday or 10 years ago, and they weren't. And there are going to be some very big gaps, I think, in the educational experiences that, that students are going to be having this year because of these things. Absolutely. Okay, sir, where shall we head to next? Well, let's go ahead and go down to media literacy. Um, boy, there's a lot here. Uh, let's go first to this Bulwark article from July 22nd. Uh, we're not a political show. Sometimes we do mention political things uh, in, the, in the area of media literacy and in its election year. Guess what? We're going to have to talk about some of this. Um, the headline is called Trump's New Ad is amazing. Uh, what this speaks to is the idea of, you know, photographs and where they came from and reverse image search. And, you know, how, how do you know? So there was a, a campaign ad. This is a July 22nd article that was that ran a couple weeks ago. And again, it's nice. It's good that, that this time around, this is something that Facebook has done back to our original discussion about Capitol Hill and and uh, Mark Zuckerberg and the other leaders of, of our big tech companies being on the grill, as it were. Uh, we have a library now where you can go in and see different political ads that are that are being run. Um, well, this ad was portraying, you know, public safety versus, you know, chaos and violence. Well, it turns out the image of chaos and violence, you would have thought maybe they could have just drawn something from the streets of Portland, Oregon, which if you haven't been tracking that has been absolutely crazy. Um, but the the pro the uh, evil hippie scum that were portrayed here actually turned out to be pro-democracy protesters in the Ukraine. Um, and there's like multiple layers to this. Uh, the riot police had been brought in to protect the authoritarian president at the time, Viktor Yanukovych, who was attempting to turn Ukraine into a one-party state by extra legal means. Uh, but the article says that's not the real bad part, um, that uh, he had actually used those police forces to assault his political opponents, tamper with elections, uh, jailed the former prime minister. He actually did lock her up. And uh, the picture that um, Trump used in his was taken on Valentine's Day of 2014. So anyway, it just 
Talk about media literacy, talk about images, talk about the ways in which images are very powerful. Propaganda is in full bloom, if you haven't noticed, around us. And it's important to have a critical eye. I also think it speaks to the idea that your typical person is not going to be able to bring to bear you know, the kinds of, of web searches and, and, and deep dives that this article reflects that they did you know, to be able to discern this. That goes back to my rather ominous statement about disinformation and the way in which, sadly, I think disinformation is going to continue to play a huge role in politics. So um, I'll do one other one. And then, uh, you know, Pat. Pat, Pat, Pat or, you actually, before you, before you do that, there's a related article here from the New York Times uh, the other day. And in the words of why I'm, I'm going to insert it here, because it's also about the Ukraine. Yep. Um, and it's, it's, it's related to Facebook, right? Like Facebook has been trying to hire locals to help uh, facilitate monitoring of content and, and identifying content that violates its rules. And I would really, I will never be able to do this article justice. And I'm almost certain that it, plugs right into the article you just shared in regards to the difficulties of figuring out the us and them and the good and bad and all these lines you have to draw here. But what that New York Times article makes the point of is that even when you're doing your best to regulate these platforms to try to figure out what information might be categorized uh, impolitely as disinformation, you might be actually... Uh, squashing legitimate journalistic activity. And that line is so fuzzy. And in fact, that's exactly what this article talks about, that, that there's a blurry line between fact checking and reality that I think it makes it really difficult to, again, going back to our earlier comments, that that's part of the reason why no one's really suggested a regulation regime yet, because it is shockingly difficult to say, this is the line of where this is okay versus not okay. And to be clear, this has probably been true for a long time, well before the Internet made the problem worse, because there's been a lot of journalism that didn't follow typical journalistic ethics that was more advocacy than anything else. But we fought for a long time to make sure that was clear. And that's all obviously been completely blown up by the everyone can publish Internet. I'm sharing this right now on Twitter as you're you're talking and, and some of the things I, I, I need to do a post about this. I really like to include in the tweet the original author's um, ID, not just New York Times, because that lets that journalist who's on Twitter, you know, see, oh, somebody else is reading me. But the other thing, and I just learned about this, I guess, this morning, maybe it was yesterday. Um, I'm using the con CW for conspiracies and culture wars and media lit disinfo like war. I'm, I'm still reading that book like war. But here's the new hashtag that I learned today. Disinfo defense. I love that. Uh, because part of what we need is to have some defense against disinformation. And, you know, the reality is, and I, and I'm not completely pessimistic and just depressed over this, but, but I think being realistic, we are so outmanned and outgunned to use the, you know, phrase from the Hamilton musical. It just, it's, it's staggering. Um, and, and really I was, uh, what was I listening to today? I was listening to the bonus episode of um, going, going to my haircut. I finished it up. Rocking Venezuela. If you have not listened to Wind of Change, have you listened to that one, Jason? It's queued up. I want to give it a oh full weekend. My so gosh. it is so good. I actually listened to the whole thing again. Well, I had not, I hadn't heard the bonus episodes, but like this is talking about the ways in which the CIA had just used the same playbook alleged for wind of change, you know, in, in the, the European, well, just in the cold war in general against the, the Soviet union used that in Venezuela more recently, but it actually was supporting right wing racists. Um, it's just, this information has been happening forever. Our government has and continues to use that kind of a playbook to try to uh, support regime change and to, you know, support candidates and oppose candidates that that we do not like. Um, that didn't end with the end of the Cold War. By the way, the the Cold War. I mean, Putin never stopped the Cold War, right? So, I mean, he's he's a KGB guy from long ago. So, anyway, good article. And uh, th these are just these are things we've got to keep talking about. And it and for the the level of kid the the developmental appropriateness the context that's going to be you know talking about advertising at a very bare minimum right because first graders are talking to their parents based upon ads they're seeing 
on mainstream regular television, on their tablet. You know, it's media literacy. It is something we, that we all need. Um, I will do one. Well, I guess I'll do two more. Um, this is a video. And I actually saw this um, today. This is a BBC News uh, video. A, sh- a shout out to Carla Arena. Carla is a friend of Alice Barr and Cheryl Oaks, the seedlings up in Maine. Uh, they got to go down to Brazil um, to a conference that she put on. I've had the opportunity the last two summers to learn with her from with the Brazilian contingent that's come to this media literacy workshop. She tweeted me this uh, BBC fantastic video called QAnon coronavirus and the conspiracy cult folks. This is a mainstream deal. We have got multiple members of Congress that have won primary elections in the United States who have publicly supported the QAnon conspiracy theory and the rabbit hole of and maybe Jason, you and others, if if anybody can help with the word, like there are real conspiracies, right? Real things happen all the time that are conspiracies. But at some point you, you know, it's like you, you go fruit loop, you know, it is just like so crazy that you've, you've stepped over the edge. And so anyway, this is part of uh, the disinformation landscape. It's an excellent video. It's about 12 minutes long. And I will be adding it to our conspiracies and culture wars resource document. Peggy is asking, well, just, I'll give you this question. How do you recommend Jason people check things like photos for validity? Um, extensive Googling, Google searching. I mean, I, that's the problem, right? And, and I, and I have to say that when effective, when I look at all these media literacy articles, this is the reason why the internet can't be a textbook, right? And I, I, I think I rail on this probably every five to six weeks on the podcast, but this is one of the reasons why that, you know, saying that students can just teach themselves utilizing the internet is such a dangerous thing. And that's partly from my perspective of, of being a social studies teacher, right? This is my business. This is my background. This is my passion as a teacher, right? I want kids to be smart and informed and understand their story and engage in government. But you can't just send students out to say, go research something on the internet as a lesson without at least first engaging them on the sources that they're utilizing, but then secondarily giving them the tools to make good decisions for themselves. And I probably would, uh, I probably do if I really wanted to verify a photo or something specific in media, start doing some Google searching. I will say there's a certain number of websites that I have trust for. Snopes, even though I've talked with some folks that don't trust Snopes, I don't get that because I feel like they've built trust with me, right? Like I feel like we have a long relationship and I've actually verified some of their claims before. They cite sources on the bottoms of their pages so you can go and dig where they receive perspective from. But that's the place I would usually go initially if it's mainstream. If it's not mainstream, then you got to start to dig and look at who's writing things and which websites they're located on and make an evaluative judgment. And, you know, I fairly certain I'm right about stuff, right? I am very open to changing my mind. In fact, I do uh, quite often on, on things that I'm passionate about. But the bottom line is, is that unless you're willing to go and dig, 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 dig yourself, it's just not that easy to get verification of things that are floating around on the interwebs. So you want to be following trusted sources and taking a look first before you look at the content at the source. And if the source that it's coming from is not one that you have strong confidence in, you know, that that's where you can just kind of end your reading or end your consumption. Right. 10i is a reverse image search website, but it does depend on how recent it is, right? If it's a brand new thing, it may not be in there. Google also offers the ability to do a reverse image search. Interestingly, I don't think there's a public tool available today to do a reverse video search. And as we get more deep fakes and these kinds of tricky videos, like I don't think there's a, a public domain tool for that yet. Um, and there's a great... Um, video that was about YouTube and disinformation by Destin, who does Smarter Every Day, uh, that he did about a year ago. It just will blow your mind about the ways in which, you know, machine learning, but also just algorithms are able to create all these permutations of individual articles. And and there's a <laughs> there's a Steve Bannon quote. There's a, another podcast I listened to that was just great in the last week. is uh, It's called War College. And they did an episode called Fake Journalists Are the Latest Dis- Disinformation Twist. 
And um, they quoted Bannon, and I won't give you the exact quote. I'll, I'll use a nicer word. But he talked about flooding the channel with excrement. <laughs> that is, that's, that's a quote from, from Breitbart, you know, founder Bannon. Um, that is part of what's happening with, with information in, in some cases. And so it's just pretty tough. So we need to be finding trusted sources. Uh, we need to, to be identifying what op-eds are versus, you know, factual news. Uh, and, and we've, we, uh, we need to cultivate these skills. Hopefully the tools are going to assist us in terms of, you know, this is that augmentation idea that I'm not just, we all, this is what, uh, at the, at the mountain moot, Peggy was there and Jason was too. Um, our, uh, our keynote speaker on day two, um, who was, help me, um, I wanted to say Sundar Pichai, but it wasn't the CEO. He was the former, uh, chief uh, education evangelist for Google, um, he said that we've all watched too many Terminator movies and we need to stop thinking about just, you know, robots all taking over the world. We, we're going to be augmented. And um, that, that's, that's a place where I think the tools haven't caught up yet. We need more tools at our fingertips that are going to help us reverse image search, check sources, you know, not just rely on our abilities to to do that from the web. But this is where we do run into it, right, Jason, with Facebook and family and lo lots of situations that we right. have to decide whether we're going to engage uh, right. with content with, with other people over things that are shared. I'd have the two other quick things uh, to Peggy's question. First, uh, I always also wait until something is covered by more than one site, right? Especially if I'm reading something that's not a mainstream media source. And I'm not, I don't care if you're talking about the, the leans left or lean right media too. I, I, I'm talking about mainstream media sources until it's covered by multiple sources. If it's inflammatory at all or introduces something extraordinary into the conversation, I just wait for verification from others, right? And that, that's really important. And then secondarily, there is a related article that I, I just wanted to mention in part because I think that it it's 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 an important tool. It's probably 15 years too late, but Google now has a, a tool it's trying to, to roll out here that's kind of encouraging you to click on other websites. And it's a for context kind of, uh, I don't know how to put, put this other than it's a um, uh, an additional set of links that when you type in certain search terms that I think are kind of current events based, it'll provide you with a variety of other links and help put context to an article. Um, I see it in terms of like, if you're looking up something that happened in North Korea, right? And obviously North Korea has been in the news the last seven days because of, of their fight against COVID. And as it turns out, if you type in North Korea, it's obviously you know way bigger than what's happening right now. And what's happening right now with COVID is part of a larger uh, macro situation in North Korea. But it puts other contextual articles there. You still have to trust those articles and verify those articles, right? But that's a good idea, right? And I think it's Google trying to figure that piece out. But I would also note Google has been part of the problem here, right? Like, and, you know, also, the, we've, I think we've taught ourselves some really lazy habits when it comes to research. If you're not leaving the top five links in Google and digging more deeply or doing additional searches based on what you find in the top five links, you're part of the problem. And I'll raise my hand. I've been part of the problem, right? And I'm not, and I know we haven't taught enough of this to kids. I will also raise my hand on that as well. But it is part, I think, of this important larger conversation. That is a great article. And I'm so glad you, you shared that. Um, shout out to Peggy George, Jamie Cassip. Jamie, please forgive me for uh, showing my age. I turn 50 next month. So, uh, but yeah, his, uh, his keynote was great. And I don't know if that's available publicly from the Mountain Mood, but what a, what a great message. Your article about the Google, um, context tool, uh, you know, that's, that's what we, one of the lessons that we were going to do for the media literacy. We did create one, but we ended up not making it the centerpiece. We called it fact or fiction Apollo moon landings. Not too long ago, it was pretty, easy to quickly get into hoax videos and, and some, some disinformation stuff about, yeah, sure. Apollo, no, we never landed on the moon. Uh, all that live streaming in 1969, it was, it was all green screen. Um, it's, it's harder to get to that now. And even when you get to an, a video that is purporting to say that, you know, the, the, the Apollo 
moon program was, was just all a, a hoax and these thousands of people that, that worked on it were just all, you know, duped. Um, you'll see a link on YouTube linking you to a, a more credible source. And that's part of what we talked about on the show a few weeks ago that President Trump got upset about was when Twitter, you know, decided to add some clarifying links as well. So I do think that tools are going to play a role in that. But the velocity that this stuff happens now is just crazy. And so especially when it's a new picture and it's a new article, um, those kind of things move quickly. Um, to do one more, we are re- approaching the top of the hour, uh, which we, we probably want to do a couple other things, Jason, besides media literacy. Uh, CNN, July 25th, Sinclair says it will postpone and re- rework segment featuring conspiracy theory about Fauci. Uh, this is, as we've talked about on the show before, the pandemic false documentary, which I think it was in May that that came out. Uh, and um, the there are some mainstream media companies that have been trying to play parts of that and share that. And so it is it's one of those things where things will also come back and, and surface again. And, um, you know, it it's it's crazy there. Look, folks, we people love conspiracies, right? I mean, uh, hey, there's we're not going to talk UFOs tonight, but there's been there's been some interesting articles in the New York Times in the last few uh, last week and and recently there's there's all we I, I love Stranger Things like that's my my summer um, my summer uh, show to to rewatch um, there's there's a lot of of intrigue and we like mysteries and all these kinds of things but at some point things can become dangerous when they're attached to politics they're attached to uh, elections and um, you know, when, when people have really shifted their frame in terms of, of who they trust, what they think is true, and then maybe when we happen to be in a global pandemic and, you know, things like wearing a mask becomes politicized. Um, Jason, our uh, town just north of us, Edmond, where uh, we used to live before we moved into the city, they just passed a mask ordinance, but it will not take effect until August 31st. And that's because it was a 3-2 vote of the city commission. This happened like night before last. And if it's not unanimous, it can't take effect as an emergency order. So they finally will have a mandatory mask order, but it won't take effect for another month. So that's that's going to be real helpful. Sorry, I'm being political. (laughs) I, I just wanted to be scientific, but I guess I'm being controversial. Oh, you wacky science lover. We need one Uh, other article before we do Geeks of the Week, at least. um, A a couple of these I'm going to push to next week because they're probably uh, a deeper demand. Let me give you a couple of quick uh, Chrome OS updates because I'm Chrome OS guy on the show. A couple of things that are interesting. First and foremost, uh, for those of you that are all go go Chrome on Android, I was going to hold up uh, a Chromebook, but I, I I could not. They're working on a new thing where uh, they're kind of following the very Apple-like pattern where they're trying to make them the, the better together notion, right, which has been around for a couple of years with, with Chrome OS. But essentially, they're going to put a phone panel on Chrome OS so that if you're using an Android phone and, and a Chromebook at the same time, you can interact better with one another. I will say the integration between those two platforms is, in, is, 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 is pretty great. It's not quite as elegant as Apple's integration, between iPhones and MacBooks, for example, or the MacBook, I'm sorry, the iPhone and the iPad, but it's it's getting to go in the right direction. But two other things to know if you're in Chrome world. First, there is a great new Office suite available for Chromebooks from something called Colabra, and it is a reimagining of the so-called LibreOffice suite, which is the open source downloadable office suite, but it works on both uh, Android and also Chrome OS, and it does recreate a desktop-like local office suite for you on the Chrome operating system. And I downloaded it based on the article that I'm sharing. You just go to the website, it talks about it, then you get this on the App Store. And it's pretty good. It's still a little wonky. Um, I I think that using uh, Google Suite or even Office 365 in the web is an elegant experience on on Chrome OS. It wasn't three or four years ago. I think it absolutely is now. But they do focus on something really interesting that if you do have a a desktop like 
office suite on your computer, you don't have to utilize the cloud. So they made it kind of a state, like a privacy play that you could, I guess, issue uh, Chromebooks to kids. They talked about students and teachers a lot in, in, in their release that you wouldn't have to utilize the cloud. I think if you take the cloud out of the Chromebook, it still works just fine. And even more so with this office suite, but man, it takes away so many important advantages, but that's just me, and I tend to have a more nuanced look at privacy. And then there's also a really interesting article in About Chromebooks. Kevin Toffel um, uh, uh, reported on July 26th that you can actually get 100 free gigabytes from Dropbox, which integrates very nicely into the Files app on a Chromebook. So you can get free Dropbox storage. It's another alternative to utilizing the Google Cloud, but it's another way to utilize the cloud on your Chromebook. Fantastic. Well, folks, we are coming up to an hour, and we need to do Quick Geeks of the Week, so I will do mine and then pass it to Dr. Neifer, and we'll get out of here. Uh, as usual, I'm going to overindulge in Geeks of the Week. Uh, first one, if you did not know, Michelle Obama, uh, is, uh, she has a new podcast, and uh, she's interviewed somebody you may know uh, and have heard of before, her husband. One of the things I want to point out is she has the coolest bumper, like, like image that goes with it that I've ever seen. It is a whole like story that scrolls up and I'd love to know what tool was used. It's probably some high end like Final Cut Pro or something. But anyway, it is, it is super cool. And the podcast, I, I've listened to about half of it. It is just fantastic. I may be disclosing a little bit about my own politics if I'm sharing that, I guess. Maybe so. Uh, next thing, this is a Google conference free coming up in two weeks. Uh, starting on August 11th. It is called the Anywhere School 2020 Conference, and there are going to be a lot of sessions. It's going to be worldwide, and it is, I think, going to be great. And it's talking about how we're going to be doing school using Google in the pandemic, brought to us by Google from Education. So that looks like a fantastic uh, opportunity. And then Lastly, and I want to thank, I think, Peggy George for this because, you know, she is the source of so much great educational technology goodness. This is a playlist that comes to us from Q, and I guess they did a conference earlier this summer called the Global um, EdTech Academy. And so this playlist has like 137 different videos about all kinds of EdTech things. It made me think of uh, the K-12 online conference way back in the day and Jeff Utech, who was uh, out in Shanghai, China. They did this thing called a land party where they invited folks over to the house and they watched a video together and they reflected on it. I mean, now that we're in COVID, that may not be a doable thing. I'm thinking those these would make great videos to do like watch parties with and then, you know, being able to to talk and interact together as you watch a video. I used to call those the, um, oh, what were those called, Peggy? Um when we would do a, it was like after we, we would do a live, um, oh gosh, my brain's just not working. We would watch a video together. And we would, we would get to chat and talk about it in, in a live stream. Uh, yeah, there was a great name that we had for that. That eludes me, but Jason tech, uh, geek, geek of the week from you today, sir. Well, uh, I received an email from Amazon last week announcing that their new eight inch fire tablet was available. And I, I had a two year old version. It's just my, you know, uh, play around tech tablet for the house. And uh, I bought it because they offered me a sweet trade-in deal and, and a discounted uh, price. And I paid uh, about half of what retail is after trade-in. And this is the new tablet. The reason why I mention this is because, uh, first and foremost, uh, it is hands down the best Fire tablet I've used from a, 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 a speed standpoint. And a lot of reviewers have noted this as, as being a really speedy tablet in light of their model. But I want to share, uh, uh, this is what I use to kind of amuse myself nerdily uh, on weekends. There's a really great uh, a piece of software you can download called Amazon Fire Toolbox that allows you to, I mean, you can do some things you do, shouldn't do, like take the ads off of it and, and uh, don't do that stuff because that probably violates the term of service. But um, you can do things like, um, you know, add your own launcher to it. Or uh, in my case, I installed the Google Play Store on here so I could also access the larger Android library. And I got to say for what I paid for this, which was, which was uh, uh, just short to 50 bucks, easily the nicest tablet experience I've had from Amazon to this point. And so I'm going to, I bought a case for it. It'll be here tomorrow. I bought a super cheap one. And this, I think, will be my reading tablet, at least for until I get bored with it. So, 
Afterglow live events. Perhaps that was what it was, Peggy. I'm not, I'm not sure. Well, Jason, when you're not here, where can folks find you on the internet? I'm on the Twitters at Tech Savvy Teach. I also work with the Northwest Council for Computer Education blog.ncc.org. And I'll give another shout out. I haven't done this for a while. Um, the Virtual Learning Leadership Alliance is a network of 15 state virtual schools uh, that and I am uh, amongst the group there. They're doing really great work. You can check them out at the virtuallearningalliance.org and also see some of the great ways state virtual schools in the United States are stepping up during the time of COVID. And they were fireside chats. Thank you so much, Peggy, for being able to make up for uh, what's clearly neurological brain loss here on, on the show. Well, we want to, th- uh, I'm W Fryer on Twitter. My blog is speedofcreativity.org. I will be sharing uh, a lot of curriculum coming up this next year as I get to teach full time. So yes, when night falls, the afterglow, uh, good memories there. Shout out to Darren Kerpatois, so many, uh, Susan Van Gelder, so many great folks. Yes, Google is on my brain, too. Well, hey, when you're not here on Wednesday night, we hope that you will uh, be downloading the show and checking out our show notes. You can find those at edtechsr.com. You can find very small 32 kilobit audio versions and pretty small. Now, I'm having to use Handbrake now, which is a free and open source video compression tool for multiple platforms. But I, I do that so we can get our approximately 60 to 65 minutes of show down to about 115, 120 megs, something like that of a, a small video. But of course, we're on YouTube. If you happen to be watching us on Facebook, you're seeing a live transcription. I, I bet YouTube does that as well. And uh, if you've got ideas for the show, if you've got feedback, in addition to joining us live, if you can, at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain, and whatever else that is in your neck of the woods, we would love to have you reach out to us on Twitter. So until next time, we encourage you to stay savvy, stay safe, and develop those media literacy skills. See you next time. Good night.